Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Church, if you'd take out your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 6, and while you're doing that, As we continue our journey through this little book that's prophetic in the sense that it spoke of Israel's place in the Lord, it begins with this story of Hosea and his wife Gomer, who kind of went sideways, but we're told that it is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And in a very unique way, in a wonderful way, it also gives us a little bit of glimpse, a little window, a little look, if you will, Uh, into the church. And while the church has not replaced Israel, and while there is a difference between the two, uh, there are some very definite similarities. And here's one of the chief similarities between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New under grace. Both are representatives of the Lord in the world at that time. Israel knew more about God than any other people on earth. Israel had been given the word of the Lord, the prophets of the Lord. Israel had the voice of the Lord. God was speaking to them directly as his chosen people. And in a similar way, we as the church under grace, through faith, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, now have the word of God in its printed form. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We know what God wants. And so in both places, there was a representative of the Lord on earth that was called his people. Today, it's every tribe and tongue and nation. It's made up of everyone who names the name of Christ, been saved by grace and through faith. Then it was God's chosen people, Israel. And Israel had chosen to disobey and to disavow the things that God had spoken to them. And so God puts them on trial. And as we've seen the verdict pronounced, as chapter 5 unfolds God's basic displeasure and says, look, here's the problem, here's what's going on, and here's the verdict, you're guilty. In other words, the, the death sentence, spiritual death sentence was handed down to them. Look, this is an irrecoverable situation, and it's going to cost you. Very much as during that point in time, the children of Israel would then file an appeal with God in the next two chapters, in chapters 6 and 7. So in a court of law, very often someone will recognize, see, I've, I've messed up, and, and I'm sorry, and I want to file an appeal, and I promise to do better. They would make a statement under oath that, hey, this is what I thought I was doing, and I really realized it wasn't the case, and I, I want to throw myself on the mercy of the court In that sense, God is now going to receive and reject an appeal from the children of Israel. It had gone way past time for them to say they were sorry because their sorrow wasn't genuine. It wasn't true. They were simply sorry they got caught. They were sorry they were suffering the consequences of their sin. They were sorry about the sin, but they were not sorry for the sin because the sin had brought them problems. The sin had 
brought things into their lives they didn't want. They didn't like the conditions that existed in their lives. And in a very similar way, I think the church today may be suffering the consequences of false repentance, of a lack of attention to detail, to the character and to the nature of God, and maybe in a worse way because we have been saved by grace. We're not under the law. We're not sitting here today as the children of God going, you know, I hope I don't miss any feast days this year. I haven't had to make a sacrifice of an animal in the temple. God's spirit dwells in me and gives me this wonderful relationship with him. And so there is something we can learn from chapters 6 and 7 as this appeal is filed and then God flatly says, no, I'm sorry, it's not going to go, it's not going to work. I'm not going to receive it. It's going to bear no fruit. And I know we can glean from this and in the time in which we live because it's time for real repentance. It's time for a real attention to the detail of the things of the Lord. And I pray that God would move us to make sure that our relationship with him is genuine, that it's truthful, and that our repentance, unlike Israel's repentance, and our actions because of our repentance are genuine, and not hypocritical as Israel was. And so would you pray, and we'll pick up here in chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Hosea. Father, we thank you that you would speak to us still this day through your word. That, Lord, we, we pray that you would minister to us by your truth of your word, and that it would sink in deeply and bear fruit in our own lives. Lord, we recognize that Uh, The world is unhinged right now. It's going so many different directions. And virtually none of them appear to be towards you. They all seem to be away from you in some way, shape, or form. And we pray for those of us that are your children by grace today, that we would stand strong in the face of the tide that's going the wrong way, and we would swim upstream. And so, God, we give you this evening and pray that you'd speak to us now as we study your word. We ask these things in the marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. And so Israel now kind of begins to recognize, and we're going to see here in the first verse of chapter 6, what appears to be a statement of repentance. But we also find out very quickly that that isn't genuine. It's not real. There's something behind it, and that something behind it is is not good. Verse 1, Hosea chapter 6, come. And let us return to the Lord. You you would think that that's pretty plain. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. One of the things that I think is so important for us as the children of God is to recognize that God knows that we know how to improperly use his word. We know that he's gracious. We know that he's kind. We know that he's gentle. We know that he's generous. We know a lot of things about God, and sometimes we take those things about God for granted. I have sat in counseling situations where I'm talking to perhaps a husband and a wife would be a good example, and they will quote to me chapter and verse that they know exactly what the Bible says about marriage and what they should do. And at the same time, they'll say, well, I'm not going to do that. And then they will name 
uh, some gracious aspect of God's character. Well, God will forgive me. God will erase that sin. As if God is obligated to do good when we're completely, not, without any question, knowledgeable of the truth, but we refuse to do it. That's really the position that Israel's in right here. And it would be good for us to learn the lesson that they will learn. That he will bind us up, but after two days he'll revive us. And on the third day he'll raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. And he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain on earth. We're going to see because directly after this, we are going to find out exactly how shallow this repentance actually is, how shallow their confession is, because God sees through it. God sees beyond it. He sees all the little things that are tucked away in our hearts. And you might even be asking yourself the the question, well, what's wrong with this? Why is it that this is, is not okay with God? They were looking for happiness. They were not looking for holiness. They were painfully unaware of the pathetic condition of their heart. They simply didn't like the way their lives were going practically. They were worried about the condition or the circumstances, but they cared little or not at all for the change of character that should be in the children of God. And there is a difference between happiness and holiness. Between living a life that's pleasing to the Lord and living a life that's just simply blessed. Now look, let's be honest. We all want blessing. We all want things to be going well. We want an end to this pandemic. We want an end to racial injustice. We we want an end to wars and rumors of war. We want an end to economic inequality. We all want an end to lots of things. We want to live lives that are blessed. And there's really nothing wrong with seeking after those things. But when you put those things ahead of the Lord, when you don't care how you get them, that's a problem for God. We can't solve injustice by further injustice and chaos and death. We, we can't create opportunity by taking equality and stealing it from someone else. You see, God's looking at the bigger picture. He's not just looking at one situation. He's looking at the whole of the earth and everyone on it and everything in it. And he's looking for our hearts to be right with him so that when we think about any particular subject, whether it's one that is primarily one of our own, or that includes the entirety of the world, that we see things his way. In other words, they were concerned for changing their kind of pathetic condition that they were in, but they were not concerned about the rottenness of their own hearts. They wanted God to make things right because they didn't like what they got. And in that way, there's a huge difference between wanting to be free from the consequences of sin instead of being freed from the bondage of the sin itself. 
This was the problem with Israel. And I think the church suffers greatly from this basic problem in our day and time. I think Christians want to be freed from the consequences of their sin. But sometimes they don't want to be freed from the bondage of sin. In other words, they're really waiting for God to to say, yeah, I'm sorry that you got caught, but they're not wanting to say, I'm sorry, and I'll never do it again. They want God to pass over the problem and in essence leave the problem intact. And God's saying, I want to change the problem. And so God says to us that we need to be careful. We need to be aware of our propensity towards shallow repentance or meaningless confession. And I can tell you, very often I've talked to people and they almost look at God like some kind of, you know, heavenly lifeguard. And he's sitting on the beach of life and it doesn't matter how tall the waves are. It doesn't matter how dangerous the situation is. It doesn't matter whether it's wrong totally to even be in the water. It doesn't matter that God's telling you from the crashing waves and all the stuff that's in front of you, don't go in the water. A lot of Christians are just simply expecting God to bail them out if they go in the water. And God, by the way the waves are shaped, and by the way the storm is blowing, and by the way the tide is pushing in and pushing out, is saying, don't go in the water. And instead, we just, ah, you know what, I'm going anyway. I don't care. And we want God then to bail us out for our stupidity for our idiotic decision to go in the water in the first place. And God's saying, look, no, I've told you, all you got to do is look and you know this is not okay. All you have to do is look in God's word and you know it's not okay. I've already told you what's going on. And he's going, yeah, you know, I don't like that. It's going to cut off my fun. You know, I really want to get out today. And basically we're saying, I want to be able to go when I want to be able to go. And and it's amazing how many people will shed tears. It's like, oh, you know, I really didn't mean it. It's like, oh, blah, 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 blah. You can shed tears and not be repentant. You just don't like what happened. You don't like the results of your sin. And in that way, I think a lot of times we allow this quick fix mentality that we have as Americans, primarily, as people who live in a blessed country, a nation whose God used to be the Lord, whose God now may be material things, wealth and prosperity, we kind of have this blind optimism that we can just live however we want and God will rescue us. We can do whatever we want without consequence. And God is reminding us through Israel That is exactly what the false prophets used to say to Israel. Oh, it doesn't matter if you go worship Baal on Monday as long as you worship God on Sunday. It doesn't matter if you go sleep with that person as long as you don't do it and get caught. It doesn't matter if you drink yourself into oblivion as long as you're sober for work on Monday. 
It doesn't matter if you go to the pot dispensary and blow all of your family's income as long as you have a way to get some more money at some point in time. And these things have infested the church with the lie that God is obligated to simply rescue us every time we mess up. And God's saying, nope, you're going to suffer the consequences of this this time. Now praise the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord for the way he does look at our situations and he does act graciously and kind and mercifully towards our weaknesses and problems. But when we intentionally sin against God, we should not ever expect that he's obligated to bail us out every single time. Israel had crossed that line. And I pray as a country, we have not crossed that line. But I have to tell you, I'm beginning to wonder if America has crossed that line. Have we gone so far away from God, so willingly turned our back on him, that he's just saying, if that's what you want, you can have it. This is very similar to you going into your dermatologist and saying, hey, you got cancer. You got, you got really bad melanoma. And your only response is, well, I don't want any scars, so I'll just put more suntan lotion on. I'll get SPF 155 or whatever. That cancerous tumor, I'll just cover it up. There's no quick fix for an unrepentant heart. You're going to have to pay the price at some point in time. And the price for shallowness can be very, very difficult. It can be extremely hard. And in the case of the children of Israel, they were not doers of the word. They were hearers only. They didn't take that James 122 principle and put it into action. They treated God like he was some celestial vending machine. And as long as they pushed the right buttons, they would get their candy bar of grace. That's not the way God works. He blesses those who bless him. His character is determined by who he is, not by what we think we should have. And so we can't expect him to bless the mess. There is no painless way to get right with God. It's always painful to repent. It's always painful to look in the mirror and go, man, that's cancer. That's going to have to be cut out. We need to learn that lesson. You see, the truth is God absolutely saw the nation's true condition. He wasn't fooled a bit. And so to that end, the remainder of these two chapters, the remainder of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, God is going to give them a vivid series of similes, those things which we would say, and this was like. And the was like part is a simile. It's like this thing. And they're not good. They might be metaphors. But I want to caution us that we can fall into these same traps. 
You see, our words, depending on whether we're humble and honest about them or whether we're trying to be deceptive and destructive with them, our words can either reveal the truth or they can conceal the truth. We're we're quite capable of using our language to obscure the truth of where our hearts are at. And I think that warning of of Solomon there in Ecclesiastes 5 is very important to us, especially in our day and time. It's a heart warning. Walk prudently, it says, when you go to the house of God. The word prudently means to be upright, in full view. Completely exposed would be another way to understand it. With full knowledge. And draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools. In other words, go into the house of God completely bare and open and get ready to hear what God has to say. For they do not know that they do evil. You see, sometimes we come into God's house and we're looking for God to send us a message that we're okay. And what God is actually saying is, you're not okay. Not only are you not okay, you're actually wrong. You don't see that correctly. And God takes his word and speaks into our lives. We just go, well, I I don't want to hear that. Here's the problem. God's word is always true. It's never not true. And so when we go into the house of the Lord, if we're being upright with God, if we're drawing near to hear, then we don't give our sacrifice of our going into the building so that we don't know what he wants. Verse 2 there in Ecclesiastes 5, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be quick to, to speak and then live long enough to regret it. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Church, I have listened to some people say things It's like, are you seriously considering what you're saying right now? How that might impact the way people see the Lord Jesus himself by associating those things which you just said with biblical Christianity when there's nothing Christian, there's nothing biblical about them. It's a political opinion. It has nothing to do with the word of God at all. But because everybody else is saying it, you got to say it too. Because everybody else is doing it, you've got to do it too. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, verse 2, Ecclesiastes 5, let your words be few. In other words, our opinions, the things that don't line up with Scripture, the things that we didn't get from God's character and nature, we need to be really careful. I've listened to people say, well, you know, God would do, and then fill in the blank. When there is absolutely no biblical support for what they just said. Or that God said when God didn't say. Or saying things like God told them to do X and X is a direct disobedience to what the word of God actually says. Those things stain the character of God. 
Is God true or is he not true? Do you believe the person or do you believe the Lord? Israel was caught in that trap. They kept saying things about God that were not true. They kept misrepresenting the Lord. They kept saying they got a specific revelation from God that allowed them to worship Molech, to bow down to Baal, to have a godless king. Well, he's king, so we got to listen to him. No, they were supposed to make sure they had God-fearing kings, and they didn't. They put people in office that shouldn't have been in office, and then they suffered for it, and they blamed it on God. And to that end, God now gives them these similes, the first of which is really, really clear. Chapter 6, verse 4 begins this way. O Ephraim, the northern kingdom, what shall I do to you? This is God. What am I going to do with you would be another way to look at it. O Judah, what shall I do to you? Judah, don't think just because you're in the south, you didn't participate in all the things that Ephraim did, that you aren't thinking and doing some of the same things. And because I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, you're both going to suffer the consequences of these actions. For your faithfulness is like the morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. You're as faithful as morning dew. Now, I don't think you need an interpretation for that. When the morning dew comes on your car, it's parked in the driveway overnight, you get up, there it is. As soon as the sun comes up, what happens to it? It's gone. The moment it gets any heat applied to it, it's gone. And so God says to them, look, don't be shallow. Don't be like that morning dew because God wasn't fooled by them. Your faithfulness is like that cloud. And therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. For your judgments are like the light that goes forth. I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. Now, it's interesting that he uses that word here. Because the covenant was known to both parties. Nobody was ignorant of the covenant. Not God and not the people. And so this isn't about what they don't know. It's about what they do know. This isn't about hidden things. It's about revealed things. And it says, there they dealt treacherously with me. Look, here's the covenant. You know it's expected. This is what I told you I would do, and I gave you this responsibility. You see, we want all kinds of authority, but we don't want any responsibility. We want to be able to basically tell God what to do. And that's what was going on with Israel. It's like, well, we know that you're holy, we know that you're just, and we know that you're true, and you don't want us to do these things, but we also know that you're good, and you're kind, and you're merciful, so we know that if we do these things you tell us not to do, you're going to have to be good to us, and God's saying, now, 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 wait a second. That's not how that works. If you willingly transgress the law of God, the apostle Paul said, there remains no longer any sacrifice for your sin. 
And God's basically saying the same thing. He says, no, wait a second. You can't just go on sinning anymore. Exactly what Paul said. I I paid for your lives. You're dealing treacherously with my goodness. And he goes on to say, Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. His bands of robbers lie in wait for men. And so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. And surely they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There's harlotry in Ephraim. Israel's defiled. And also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. He's saying, look, you can't keep doing what I told you not to do. You're going to pay a price. There's going to be a harvest. And that harvest is not going to be good. In other words, in that sense, Israel's devotion to the Lord was temporary, and it only lasted as long as God blessed them. If anything bad came up, they just went right back to doing whatever they wanted to do. The prophets of God were like the word of God. It was penetrating their hearts. And Hosea's saying, look, the people are turning a deaf ear. Now, church, I want to speak to you for a minute. God absolutely despises, he hates, The pharisaical hypocrite, the person who says, I know what God wants, I know what God says, but it doesn't apply to me. If you want to get a spanking from the Lord, I can tell you there are a few ways that Scripture plainly lays out that you can be guaranteed you're going to get exactly that. And this is one of them. You know what God wants when you know what God says. When you know that he is merciful, when you know that he wants you to not cast your cares upon him in vain and then turn right around and do what he told you not to do, when you know that, you are going to get a spanking. You you can't deliberately disobey the Lord and not expect him to, to react. Case in point begins with Adam in the garden. If God was going to just let Adam get away with it, then Adam would have never received the curse. But what happens to Adam when he sins? He's cursed. He ends up having to till the ground and work by the sweat of his brow. He's going to have to, instead of being given everything, now he's going to have to earn a living. This principle began in the garden and it's still alive today. If you want God to bless you, you have to do things his way. You can't just pick and choose what you like about God's character and nature and disobey half the stuff and do a few things where you think you're going to get all the goodness and none of the chastisement. Both Israel and Judah had an appointed harvest. And they were going to get exactly what Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. And so when you sow to the flesh, you're going to get corruption. That's a law. It's a spiritual law. The second simile, their lust was like an overheated oven. It's like lust is an invisible thing, by the way. It's inside. It's generally not outside. It comes out and it turns into things like fornication or adultery, those types of things. But look at verse 1, chapter 7. When I would have healed Israel, and he's saying, look, I wanted to heal you. I would have healed you. I would have gladly healed you. Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. 
the wickedness of Samaria. For they've committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil from the outside. They don't consider what's in their hearts. Did I remember all of their wickedness? And now their own deeds have surrounded them, and they're before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and their princes with their lies. In other words, if you do things the world's way, the king and the prince are going to go, that's awesome. You see, there's a lot of things in our world that are legal, but they're not okay with God. There are all kinds of things that you can do that the world will say, ah, that's just the way the world is. That's the way it goes. That's the way it works. I've had people try and justify innumerable things, all because it's legal. Last week, I had another guy come into my office who got into a car accident, destroyed his car, is being sued, and he wanted me to pray for him, which I did. Then he got to the bottom of how it happened. Well, it was legal marijuana. Well, I don't know why they sell it. You know, can't smoke it. You're not supposed to be dissipated in your mind is what scripture says. Maybe legal doesn't mean it's okay with God. May make the king glad. May be okay with the government. But God has another way of viewing it. How many destroyed marriages have you read about recently in the news, especially of people in Hollywood, entertainment industry? And I'm not trying to pick on them because this is rampant in our culture in general, but these are more prominent. Well, we've just agreed to do a conscious uncoupling. We've grown apart. We just aren't the same people as we were last week when we got married. We can just no longer live in harmony. We're going to raise our children together. That is hogwash in the eyes of the Lord who overheard your vows to say until death do you part. God doesn't look at marriage like it's, well, you know, it's working for me today, but not for me tomorrow. I was okay when it was like this, but I'm not okay when it's like that. No, I do means I do. Doesn't mean I might. I kind of, sort of should. You see, it's okay with the government. You can have irreconcilable differences with the government, but there are no irreconcilable differences with God. No one can show me an irreconcilable difference in the Bible. That's the word of man. And so what does God say? They're all adulterers. They're like an oven heated by a baker. In other words, it's overheated. And ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it's leavened. And in the day of our king, princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. In other words, the government's going, yeah, it's fine to drink. It's fine to be an adulterer. It's fine to do all these things. We don't really care. Just keep it out of the public square. It's your own personal business. Do whatever you want. And God's going, it's not okay. It's not okay that you're a drunkard. It's not okay that you leave your wife or your husband. It's just not okay with God. 
You can think it is because it's okay with the government and God's saying it's not okay with me. He stretched out his hand with scoffers and they prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps at night. In the morning, it burns like a flame of fire and they're all hot like an oven. In other words, everybody's wandering around going, my oven's ready. Want to do some bacon with me? How about we change buns in the oven? Church, we're supposed to be different than the world. People are supposed to look at our lives and go, they actually meant that. We need to be careful. In the morning, it's still going to be burning. And devoured their judges. Their kings have fallen. And none among them calls upon me. In other words, they don't go to the Lord. They're not going, Lord, what do you think I should do? They go to the kings. They go to the princes. They go to their neighbor. They go to their friends. They go to their parents. They go to their kids. They go to everybody but God. Israel got judged for this. They're going to be taken captivity because of this. The northern kingdom is going to be obliterated because of this. We might want to take heed. Look at your television. Ask yourself a simple question. What do you think the message of the world is? There is no faithfulness in our culture. And I'm not saying everyone I'm saying culturally, our world's jacked up. It's a mess. We're going the wrong direction. We're not heading towards the Lord. We're heading away from the Lord. We are like an oven heated to 10 times its, its normal temperature. The third simile that's here, and just for reference place, during this time, Israel had five kings in 13 years. Four kings were assassinated in 20 years. So each king would come up with a new set of rules. And they'd pass along the wayside. To me, that's kind of a warning to us in our day and time. A new king is not going to fix what's wrong with America. It is a turning to the Lord that's going to fix what's wrong with America. That, the problem we have is a spiritual problem. It's not a law problem. The law should be a result of who we are spiritually. Our problem is a spiritual problem. We don't take vows seriously and we change kings as soon as we don't like what the king has done. Just like Israel. Notice verse 8. They were a half-baked cake. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this or not. Ephraim has mixed himself amongst the people. Ephraim is a cake unturned. During that day and time, a cake was actually a biscuit. It was a piece of bread, and it was normally cooked on a hot rock. And so if you would just put the dough on a rock and leave it on the one side, it never got turned, so it was never completely done. On one side, it's burnt. On the other side, it's raw. Very similar to us making biscuits in the high Sierras on our backpacking trips. We'd card in some biscuit dough, we mix it up in a baggie and put it on a stick. And if you didn't turn the stick 
If you didn't rotate it the whole time it's sitting over that fire, one side would be completely burned and the other side completely raw. That's what happens when you turn away from the Lord. When you just cook the one side of your life, when you expose the one side of your life to the Lord and to his word, and you don't expose all of your life to the Lord and to his word, you are a half-baked cake. It has to be thorough, in other words. God's word must reach the entirety of our lives. It has to get into every nook and cranny. Full rotation of the dough. You see, we like to hide the side that we don't want God to see. That's what Israel was doing. Well, don't look on that side. When you compromise with the world, and that's what this was, Ephraim was mixed amongst the people. When you compromise with the world, you will have an unbaked cake. You're going to have unbalanced conduct, and you're going to have immature character. Nothing's going to be cooked through and through. A fourth thing, and this is certainly one that we can see. I can see it. Now, man, I'm not picking on you. I'm with you. Aliens have devoured his strength. Every time I do something anymore, it's like, man, I think I used to be stronger than this. Somehow I don't remember every joint in my body hurting if I picked up a pot or a pan in the kitchen. But he does not know it. Yes, his gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. In other words, you can actually look in the mirror and go... That's really bad. You can see every line, every wrinkle, every wart, every freckle, every age spot, every bald spot, every gray hair. You can look right in the mirror and go, ah, I still look awesome. Man, it's like, you you ever noticed how when you look at your your photos, it's like, you always, it's like, you look from like here to there, you know, you pick the part that looks okay still. It's like, that's not too bad. They do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Not for their strength, not for their pride, not for their arrogance. In other words, they were completely vain. They're like doing a spiritual comb over. It's like, well, we'll just flip it over here. They've got on the toupee and they don't realize the toupee is flipped back on the backside of their head. Their baldness is still showing, but it's flapping in the breeze. I know most of you have seen that guy. He's older than the dirt. He's like me, but he's still trying to act like he's 25 years old. That's how God sees us. God goes, you're older than dirt. You're not 25. You're like the emperor's new clothes. The children of Israel was naked before the Lord. They're walking around with zip on, and God's going, you're naked. And they're going, uh-uh, I look good. I'm going to check this out. That's not a, that's not a belly. That's, that's like I got so much chest muscle, it's like sunk down into my belly. No, you're just fat. 
You're bald. You look terrible. See, that's how God sees our sin. You're fat, you're bald, you look terrible. We're going, nah, I look awesome. Israel, during this time, Samson's making his mistake. The judges are judging falsely. Their political strategy's falling apart. The world is falling apart around them. They're all, it's fine. The pride of Israel was gray hair. It was getting old. The fifth thing, they were being silly. They were being dumb. Notice verse 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. Dumb as hot rocks. Their brains and bricks were the same. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. And wherever they go, I'll spread my net on them. It's like, you're not going to escape. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone out and, and looked at how doves try and hide. They try and hide in plain sight. Like if they get really low and just stay still, you won't see them. It's like, that's a dove. It's like, it's right there. God's going, that's Israel. It's right there. I'll just spread my net over them. All you do is toss a net over them. They're done. I'll bring them down like birds of the air. I'll chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. In other words, he's saying, look, you know the truth. The truth is spoken. The prophet said it. You don't want to do it. You're being dumb. You're being dumb. You're like a dove trying to hide in plain sight. You're completely naked. You think you have clothes on. You think you have hair. You're bald and gray. You think you don't have warts and wrinkles. You, you, you look like something out of a horror flick. It's awful. God says, you're just flying here and there. You're doing whatever. You go to king of the Syria, go to Egypt, go everywhere but to me. That's what's the problem with the children of Israel in the book of Numbers. It's like the, the people live apart. They don't consider themselves as one of the nations. They're not going to be holy unto me. And I am holy as, and you need to be holy like I'm holy. One of the things I, I used to get this question all the time, amazingly from the guys, they all know the story of Solomon. Well, you know, Solomon had like a billion wives. Solomon was like, oh, and I go, yeah, why don't you look at what happened to Solomon because of those billion wives? Read the book of Kings. That was the beginning of the downfall of the nation Israel was all those wives. Because every last one of them was a political alliance with another nation. And every time he married a new woman or had a new concubine, something else bad happened. Well, you know, it was legal. Yeah, well, you're being like a silly dove. It also didn't get him anything good. He paid a horrific price for it. Finally, the last simile, a faulty bow. 
because God couldn't depend on Israel to be faithful. Notice, woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. This is his chosen people to whom he's speaking. Just like we are his kids by grace, so Israel were his representatives on earth at the time. He said, woe to you when you flee from me. Destruction when you transgress, when you go against what I have said. Though I redeemed them, notice this, I paid the price for you. I redeemed you. I brought you out of bondage in Egypt. I led you through the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land and you're still doing the wrong thing. And yet they've spoken lies against me. You won't tell people the truth about me. They did not cry out to me with their heart. And when they wailed upon their beds, they assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. It's like one minute you're crying out to God, the next minute you're doing whatever you want to do again. And though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. I gave them strength. They can't even use the strength for my glory. They return, but not to the most high. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes will fall by the sword and their cursings of their tongue. For this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. In other words, what God is saying is, you might want to consider the direction you're going. Because what you perceive as strength is actually going to end up being against you. And this is again where I see such a similarity to where the church is in America today. We, we think our strength is our superiority in numbers. We think our strength is our monetary abilities. We, we think our strength is these massive buildings. We, we think our strength is we have all this technology. Our strength is the Lord. And the church needs to turn to the Lord at this time. We need to turn away from the world. God is not going to continue to bless us if we turn away from him. He didn't do it with Israel, and he's not going to do it with us. All you got to do is read what it says, and it becomes very clear. God's people are supposed to act as God wants them to act. Be as God wants them to be. We can't be a faulty bow. We can't be the bow that when God puts an arrow on us and shoots it, it goes sideways. I don't know how many of you have any experience in archery at all. But when that arrow rest is not proper, when it has a a little bit of a deformity in it, you have no idea where that arrow is going to go. If that arrow isn't lined up straight, if it's not drawn back straight, if your grip isn't good, you can have a perfectly good arrow and a rotten bow, and that thing's going to go the wrong direction. God's saying, look, you don't want to be like that. I, I showed you what you want to, what I need you to do. I taught you these truths. You're supposed to walk in them. And to that end, I want to wrap up with this. How are you doing with 
what the Lord wants in your life. Tonight, how are you doing? You see, we know what the children of Israel did. They did the wrong things. And they're still paying a price for it. Now, praise the Lord. God in his mercy is going to regather the nation, which he has, and he's going to bring them ultimately to faith in Christ, which he will. But they spent an awful lot of time wandering in the wilderness. An awful lot of time being persecuted. An awful lot of time without and very little time with. And so as you look at these images, as you look at these similes, it might be good for us to take stock of our own devotion to the Lord. How devoted are you to the Lord? How are you doing in that way? How is your life of faith? In this chapter, how lasting is your life of faith? Is it so much a part of who you are that without faith you're nothing? How deep is it? Is it, is it like the dew on your car in the morning? Or is it a river of living water that's torrents, that, that never dries up, It's always sufficient? How dedicated to you are, are these things? How, how is your dedication to the Lord would be another way to look at it. What's your level of dedication to these things? So many Christians are, they're, they're Sunday for a few hours. And I'm not trying to pick on you. We, we've all been through a lot these last several months. But you can either come out of this more dedicated to the Lord or less dedicated to the Lord. How strong are you in him? Is your strength coming from the Lord? Is that where your help comes from? Or, or is it coming from something else, somewhere else, some place that isn't of the Lord? How well-baked is your life in that sense? Has God been able to cook all of you? Are you fully mature? How serious is that faith? Is it something that occupies your heart and mind every day? Or is it only when you get to a problem? How faithful is your faith? You see, some people look at faith like it's just an endless supply and they never ask for more of it. I found myself these last few weeks just going, Lord, I just need more faith. I don't have enough faith. I need to walk in faith. I want to have faithful faith in that sense. You see, faith does nothing if the object of your faith is nothing. To have faith in faith is stupid. It's dumb. My faith is in the Lord. That's where my help comes from. And that's why I want to have strong faith in him. And to that end, that's why it's dependable. How dependable is your faith? You see, if your faith is in this world, if your faith is in government, if your faith is in another person, if your faith is in your finances, if your faith is in anything save Jesus Christ, then your faith is not going to be very dependable. But if your faith is in him, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, heaven and earth the great I am, if your faith is in him, then your faith will be dependable. 
You'll be able to turn to it whenever. That's why your genuine faith, your saving faith is always tested. It's always tried and always comes out to be proven to be real. That's why you can count it all joy. In all of these things, church, God has called us to be faithful. He's called us to be different. He's called us to rest and trust in him. He's called us to be deep, not shallow. He's called us to be faithful as he is faithful. He's called us to be strong because it's his strength in us that makes us so. He's caused us to be mature, well-baked, ready to come out of the oven and be used for his glory and be serious about his business because the time is short. And so I pray as we endure yet one more week of this lockdown, this lock-in, that we know that we are not locked out from heaven, that our Redeemer lives, and he's worthy of our worship. Will we learn these lessons from Israel and seek to never justify the things that we know are not okay with him? Father, thank you for this time tonight, and we are grateful, Lord, that you haven't really spanked us yet. And so there's time for us to, to turn, repent, I believe. And so, Lord, if there are things in our lives that don't belong there as a child of God, would you show us those things? And would we repent of them genuinely, faithfully, completely? Lord, not because we're suffering, but because we want to be holy as you're holy. Father, thank you for loving us. Help us to be encouraged that you do have a plan for Israel. You still have a plan for us. Lord, help us to, to do our part to be faithful to you because you've been faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.